Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we start the show today, I have an announcement for everyone. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have read Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. That's the book that we put out in October of 2019. Well, the follow-up to that book, that book is part of a, a series, uh, book two in that series is going to come out September 8th of this year. And you can now get it on pre-order. It is called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, A Strong Town's Approach to Transportation. You can get more information on the book, sign up to be part of the, uh, the book tour, uh, to get alerts and everything else. We're doing a lot on this book in the next four and a half months before it is officially released. You can get all that information at our website, confessions.engineer. Uh, we've set up a new website just for the book, confessions.engineer. There's no .org or .com or anything like that. We actually bought the domain name confessions.engineer. Head over there and check it out and get yours. Uh, there'll be more to come here shortly. Thanks. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I was thinking about how I was going to start this one. It, what came to my mind is that part of my job, I wind up like collecting people and being collected by people. You just wind up like building this uh, group of people where I, I don't even know how I found Alex. I, I have no clue how we even met. You're going to have to remind me. But Alex Alsup is the director of housing stability at the Rocket Community Fund. And we have been trying to do a podcast for probably about four years and we finally have it set up now. So this could be either the most fun time or the biggest disaster that has ever been on this podcast. So Alex, welcome, dude. Hey, Chuck, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yes, very happy to be a uh, non-fungible token in your uh, strong <laughs> towns uh, playing deck. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Do you know where we met? I have no, I have no recollection. It's just like you, one day you were part of my life and you've been a, like a part of my life since. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think that you were in Detroit for something. And, and, and uh, I think I had reached out after reading some strong town stuff online. You know, I came to you guys because I, it was at a time where I had sort of first gotten into Nassim Taleb and Anti-Fragile. And I remember one day just Googling Anti-Fragile Cities. And of course, the first thing that came up was Strong Towns. And I was like, okay, these are my people. I got to reach out to them. And and yeah. I know you used to send me all these maps that just would blow my mind. And we would email back and forth and chat. And I, I credited you with turning me on to Chris Arnotti. And then you said, no, that wasn't me. That was me, I think. Okay, that I was you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, totally. I feel like you've recommended like a lot of important things in my life. So, yeah, it's good. Let's let people know what the Rocket Foundation or the Rocket Fund is and how it, it kind of got set up and established and, and, and how it relates to the overall, you know, Quicken Loans family of, of things. Sure. Yeah. So the Rocket Community Fund is the philanthropic arm of the Quicken Loans family of companies. 
Um, we have a number of teams that focus on different philanthropic areas in, in our home cities, but you know, the vast majority of the work that we do is in Detroit. So I lead our housing stability work. We have teams that work on entrepreneurship, education and workforce development, um, sponsorships, developing volunteer opportunities for the 30,000 or so um, family of companies, team members, uh, an array of different uh, areas. My history with the community fund and, and the family of companies kind of tracks back to, and I think where a lot of this starts, tracks back to when our uh, founder and chairman, Dan Gilbert, was on the Detroit Blight Removal Task Force. So this was 2013 uh, when the city was going through bankruptcy and the Obama administration wanted to figure out ways to support the city as it was going through bankruptcy. And so one of the things that was created was this blight removal task force where the, the, the task force was sort of charged with understanding the physical condition of the city while the bankruptcy addressed the financial condition of the city. And so Dan was one of the, the three co-chairs of the blight task force. I was working at a company called Loveland Technologies based in Detroit. We were developing parcel mapping software in the city, mostly motivated by our desire to better understand what was happening with property um, in the city at the time. And uh, we were invited to speak to the Blight Task Force, and they kind of said, if you could do anything right now, what would you do? And we said, well, we would physically go to all 400,000 properties in the city and collect qualitative data on what was happening with every one of those properties, You know, merge that with quantitative governmental data, assessment records, tax records, so on and so forth. And sort of, you know, if you're going to try to understand the physical condition of the city, well, you got to actually assess what that is first. Um, and so we, we did that over the winter of 2013, 2014 in a project called Motor City Mapping, worked with about 400 people, used software developed by Loveland Technologies and went to all 400,000 properties in the city and kind of created this comprehensive picture of the conditions of every property in Detroit. You know, out of that effort uh, that we sort of started to di diagnose and see a lot of things in property conditions and housing conditions in the city that I think have since then informed the work of the Rocket Community Fund and, and, and uh, uh, directed a lot of our, our philanthropic activity. And the first among those is property tax foreclosure yeah. um, in Detroit. I want to talk about tax foreclosure. I, I feel like one of the places that you and I bonded early was this idea that contrary to, I think, the broad American mythos of Detroit, Detroit is not some hellscape that should be abandoned and left to rot, but it also is a place that is struggling in, in, in ways that are kind of predictive of what other parts of America have gone through. I, I think you either inspired me to write or 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 vice versa you know the idea that detroit is is kind of written into the destiny of other places what is the quote that you use a lot you you've got one from like a former mayor there or something that has yeah. resonated with me yeah it's a, a line from uh, former mayor coleman young's autobiography uh, hard stuff and he said in in the evolutionary urban order of american cities Detroit today has always been your town tomorrow, which is, I think, sort of the, as you said, sort of the perfect encapsulation of what's so important about this place in a, in a national context. I think one of the things that I have 
grown to appreciate uh, more than anything is just how wealthy and successful and really dominant in the American conversation Detroit once was. You know, really as like the pioneer of what we at Strong Towns call the suburban experiment has, you know, seen a lot of that fortune uh, dissipate. But I will also say to follow up on that has been one of the most exciting places of the last couple of decades to me in North America. When people ask me if I want to see innovative things going on, or I want to see the place that is, you know, putting Strong Towns ideas into practice, there's a handful that I mentioned, and, and Detroit is always one of those. Yeah, I think that's one of the important things for me about Detroit is that we don't rehash what we already know doesn't work. If there's opportunity in the situation that we find ourselves in, right, we should not be going back to models and methods that already didn't work. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about tax foreclosure. Every place has a certain process, and I've been interested to learn the process there and what, how tax foreclosure works in, in your part of the world, particularly as it works with people who are more disadvantaged, less connected, have fewer means than others. It's been a, a real driving force. Can you just talk about tax foreclosure in the context of, of Detroit? Sure. So I think it's helpful maybe to go back to the origins of our contemporary tax foreclosure system in the city. In 1999, the state legislature created the contemporary tax foreclosure system in a infamous bill to those of us in the tax foreclosure circles, PA 123. And, you know, we prior to that, like I think a lot of states had a, a lean sale system. It was like a seven year process. I don't know. That's what we lot. have in Minnesota. It's a seven year process. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was pretty cluttered. It was pretty hard to manage, I think. But there was not what we have now and what PA 123 created, which was a, a title sale at the point of tax foreclosure. And so the two things that PA 123 did was shorten the, and the two major things, shorten the foreclosure timeline from seven years to three years and create this tax foreclosure auction where you would get clean marketable title to the property if you bought it in an auction. And then the third thing I should say is um, also instituted 18% um, annual interest rates on delinquent property taxes. So if you fell behind, you were going to get basically credit card interest credit rates, rates right. right, on your yeah. property taxes compounding annually. You know, it's a really great case study in sort of fragile policy. The two underlying assumptions of PA 123 were if you create this 18% bludgeon on delinquent property taxes, people are going to want to do everything that they can to avoid it. And then two, even if they don't, there's always going to be a market for clean title to property. And of course, you couldn't create two better assumptions right. to be undermined completely in the you know, combined context of the financial crisis, the housing stock of Detroit, a lot of which, you know, single family homes built quickly, uh, not intended to last as long as they've had to last. And then, you know, after 2008, it didn't matter how much interest you were putting on those property taxes, people didn't have the money to pay them. 
And it didn't matter how clean the title was or how cheap you tried to sell the property for, people didn't want it. So, you know, in the last 15 years in Detroit, we've had about 135,000 properties enter a tax foreclosure auction, about one in, one in three properties in the city. And half of those properties, around I think around 66,000 of those properties, received no bids for an opening price of $500. In the second round of the tax foreclosure auction, regardless of what the property is, it would go into the auction, $500 minimum bid, and 66,000 properties over the last 15 years received no bids for $500 and are now owned by the Detroit Land Bank as the owner of last resort. One out of three properties. Yes. What I would like to dig into with the property tax foreclosure thing, the thing that has always kind of astounded me is the, I think the recycling of these properties. When we talk about one out of three properties have been in tax foreclosure, a lot of these properties have been in multiple times. I mean, by shortening this window from seven years to three years, there is kind of almost a, a business model around foreclosure. Because if I can buy a property for 500 bucks and then I can put it back into the marketplace and rent it out, you know, as a substandard property for a short period of time, I can let it go tax foreclosure again and I can maybe even acquire that same exact property. Can you talk a little bit about what I think that market looks like? And then I'd like you to also kind of expand that and what it looks like for the person who is living in that as a, as a renter or as someone who, you know, can't acquire the property themselves or, or, or maybe has not been able to, but is now caught up in the system. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to start with why there are properties that an investor might, a speculator is probably the more accurate term, might want to buy and turn into a rental property and, and, and cycle through these auctions. And the reason for that is that we've had tens of thousands of homeowners who have gotten caught in these tax foreclosure auctions. And the vast majority of them were qualified for property tax exemptions that would have wiped out their property tax bill entirely. Uh, the state of Michigan requires every city to offer a exemption from property taxes to homeowners with low incomes. Detroit's exemption is 100% if you're below about 130% of the federal poverty line. And through work we've done at the Rocket Community Fund, a program that we started called Neighbor to Neighbor, um, which sort of builds on the model of motor city mapping. And, and we work with about 30 community organizations across the city knock on the doors of all 60,000 homes in Detroit that are behind on property taxes, we've discovered that 85 to 90% of homeowners who owe property tax debt would have qualified for the city's 100% property tax exemption. So these are people who are facing the loss of their homes for property taxes that they never should have had to pay in the first place. But what that means is if they wind up in a tax foreclosure auction, the home is occupied. It's in decent condition. And those are the situations that speculators look for because they know that there's somebody there. They may have a built-in customer in converting that homeowner to a tenant. They may just know that the house is in good condition and they can evict them and then put somebody else in there. And then there's a term for what 
speculators do with these properties that was coined by uh, some local uh, academic researchers who have done a lot of work, excellent work on, on tax foreclosure, which is that they milk the properties. So essentially they don't pay the pro- you know, these speculators, they buy the properties at auction for very little money. They charge whatever they can in rent, either to the person that's there or evict the former homeowner, put somebody else in the home, collect rent from them. They invest nothing into the property. They don't maintain it. They don't pay the property taxes. They don't pay the taxes themselves. Exactly. It goes back into the auction and they buy it again, or they just walk away from it and they buy another property. Or, you know, there are many speculators who are more adept at paying the bare minimum in property taxes, getting on payment plans, you know, sort of gaming the system where they never are paying the full amount of property taxes. They're paying as little as they possibly can to not lose the property from year to year while they continue to milk it uh, for whatever they can get out of it until it's so deteriorated um, that nobody can live in it, at which point they just walk away. And the property winds up someday in the Detroit Land Bank's inventory. Right. Let me ask, I think, what the obvious question that people listening to this are going to have, which is, how do people not know they don't have to pay property tax? You know, How do people living in a house not understand that they have a 100% property tax exemption and find themselves in this situation where they're going to lose their house yeah. because, and, and pay 18% interest rates on taxes that they technically don't owe? How, how does this happen? So back, this was maybe six or seven years ago. The situation has gotten a lot better you know, over that period. And we've worked hard with partners in the city of Detroit, uh, government, community organizations across the city to advocate for reforms to the property tax exemption. But back, back six or seven years ago, to get a property tax exemption, and never mind an exemption, to get the application for a property tax exemption, you had to physically go to City Hall and fill out an application for the application to then be mailed to you. You had to be aware that this was there. Yes. Then you had to go and fill out a form to actually acquire the application that you would then fill out? Yes, that's correct. You would, okay. you would, you, the, the application would be mailed to you. It often would be mailed to you after the date at which you needed to complete the application in order to get the exemption. Famous line, you know, bureaucracy is a form of violence. Like I always think of this when yeah, I yeah, think of yeah. hear that line, right? Right. So that was that was the process. Nobody knew it existed. Those who did know, it was very hard for them to uh, get the application. It was very hard to complete the application. Again, fortunately, that's changed significantly over the last six or seven years. Uh, but ultimately, that 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 situation led to a lawsuit between the city, the um, ACLU. And the city of Detroit, the ACLU sued the city of Detroit for denial of due process because people couldn't get the exemption that they were entitled to. And that case settled. But, but you know, so we have seen a lot of improvement. The application is much easier for people to access today. Six or seven years ago, the city was averaging probably something like 3,500 property tax exemptions granted a year. Uh, last year, we had 11,000. You know, our, part of our work at the Rocket Community Fund is that we work with about 15 um, community organizations, many of the same organizations that we do neighbor to neighbor this citywide door knocking campaign with. We fund them every year to help 
residents complete their property tax exemption applications. Uh, and they're phenomenal. I mean, they just do incredible work. They are local community development corporations, neighborhood organizations, block clubs who are incredibly committed to their neighborhoods, to this work. They do an incredible job helping people through what is still a, I mean, it's not still not an easy application. It's a lot better than it was, but it's still not easy. And they help people through this paperwork. And, and over the last couple of years, about 40% of the applications, the property tax exemption applications in the city have come through them. So they've been an, a huge part of increasing the number of property tax exemptions that, that homeowners are, are getting in Detroit. I want to dig into neighbor to neighbor because it's such a fascinating program. One of the questions that people are are going to be asking hearing this is, if we go back to 1989 and the law, it, it seemed like the the idea of the law was, let's get these properties unencumbered and get them out so they can start to be used again. And you explain how, like from a supply demand standpoint, that just that as a broken system that doesn't work, and it actually is dislocating people, you know, taking them out of their home. How important is the neighborhood? stabilization part of this? Because I, I I know people are going to hear this and say, okay, you're collecting zero property tax from these places. How is this benefiting the community at all? And it's really about, I think, like first keeping people in their homes, right? Like, like keeping these neighborhoods intact. Can, can you talk a little bit about the importance of that and, and maybe tie in a little bit the neighbor to neighbor part? Uh, because I feel like you're building something from the bottom up here that is really, really powerful, you know, that, that the rocket fund has been part of, you know, helping piece together. The first thing I think to understand about the importance of prioritizing, keeping people in their homes and restoring their agency in this process. I think that's part of this as well. I mean, one of the most awful things to observe in tax foreclosure is just that people are robbed of their agency. They don't get to decide. They don't have access to the tools that exist but are difficult to use to help them. And so part of this process that's very important is to fight to restore that agency for people to you know, make their own decisions and have the tools that they need to stay in their homes. That, to me, I think is, is enough. But, you know, you can also make a very strong economic argument, uh, revenue argument for um, this activity as well. The city of Detroit's budget, only about two and a half percent of the city of Detroit's budget comes from residential property taxes. It's a very small portion of our budget. It's not a significant revenue source. How much percent? Two percent? Two and a half percent. Yes. Two and a half percent. And and one third of properties gone through tax foreclosure. That's so this right. is a huge amount of dislocation yep. for a tiny amount of budget revenue. That's right. And right. we've also studied, you know, I think for people who are new to this, I think one of the sort of easiest ways to wrap your head quickly around the implications of tax foreclosure are the the photographs of photographs that that I collect where I take pictures of screenshots of Google Street View images of Detroit over time. We ran one of these and it's one of our most popular articles of the year last year because it is astounding what's happened, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, uh, 
I, I call it Goobing. It's a, it was a combination of, of Google and Bing that first I, you know, Google had gone through in like 2009, Bing went through the city in like 2011, 2012. So I had these two frames. And so I mashed it up to, to call it Goobing Detroit. And then obviously Google released its, its archival street view imagery. And now you have, you know, six, seven, eight frames over the last 12 years or so where you can see the change in Detroit properties that have been through tax foreclosure. And like, I mean, as you saw, it, it's not subtle. Homes get destroyed. It's disastrous. The cost of dealing with the fallout. So you have two, you know, two and a half percent of the city's budgets coming from residential property taxes. It doesn't cost nothing to deal with these properties once they go through tax foreclosure and they look like that. I mean, a demolition costs $16,000. Right. It's enormously expensive. So when you total out the cost of dealing with these properties, losing population, losing home ownership, losing the potential tax generation potential of that property in the future, you know, if you total all that and you look at, or we could just collect $0 and keep this person in their home. Again, if you need the economics, forgetting the moral part of this, exactly. Right? If, you, if you need <laughs> if the economics are what you want. I mean, you cannot say that there is not a far better economic equation to keep people in their homes and collect $0 in property taxes for them, preserve those properties, preserve that tax base. It's clearly a far better option. Let me ask you this. There are people who own their homes who are getting caught in this, but there's also people who are renters who pay you know, good money every month to rent a home. And then the home winds up in tax foreclosure because the actual owner isn't paying it. There's a certain like subset of people that are basically, I'm going to say not allowed to participate or, or don't have a clear path to participate in home ownership, in rebuilding the community, in stabilizing the neighborhood. And they're almost kind of victimized by this process. In my community, we, we have this dysfunctional conversation about renters as being people who don't care and are transient in the community and not vested like everybody else. And we, we kind of create like a, a dialogue where they're like a subclass of people. I, I reject this. I think this is wrong. But I feel like in Detroit, you actually have uh, that in kind of a stark way where the renters in many ways want to be the responsible homeowner, right. uh, but, but struggle to actually get to that point. And by, by not by their lack of desire or even their lack of resources many times. Let me back up. And I think I was supposed to talk about neighbor to neighbor you a were, bit more generally. I'm... And I got upset about, uh, <laughs> <laughs> about the, the destruction of owner-occupied homes through tax foreclosure. But, but I'll address that you know, in talking about neighbor to neighbor. So we did neighbor to neighbor the first time in, in 2018. And again, the idea was let's work with community organizations across the city. We will grant money to them as the Rocket Community Fund, which they will use to hire people from their neighborhood who we will train to go door to door and collect information from residents who are behind on their property taxes and also give them information based on their situation that they can use. So different information for homeowners versus tenants versus land contract holders, so on and so forth. So we've done neighbor to neighbor two times. We've knocked on the doors of all 60,000 properties in the city behind on property taxes 
twice, make contact with about 65%. We usually make two passes. And when you um, say we, you really mean like, this is not a couple of college interns. You're actually activating neighborhoods yes. to go out and talk to neighbors. You're, you're actually working with already established groups to do this too, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So the canvassers, we've worked with about 200 canvassers each year. Uh, we train them, my team at the Rocket Community Fund, we train them on how to use the Loveland Technologies mobile app to go uh, door to door. And we use that as our, our sort of data collection um, tool. Uh, and we ask different questions of homeowners, different questions of tenants, right, to try to get at the, the particular circumstance. And so with homeowners, right, sort of the, the high level takeaway with homeowners is, is what I was mentioning about the property tax exemption. At every home where we encounter somebody who self-identifies as a homeowner on the flyer for homeowners, we print the income levels that qualify you for the property tax exemption. And the canvassers hold up the flyer and say, based on this, would you qualify for the exemption? And 85% of the homeowners that we speak to say, yes, based on those income levels, I would qualify. And so that was what you know, confirmed for us that, yeah, okay, we need to get all of these people property tax exemptions. We also need to figure out a way to eliminate the debt, which we can talk about a little later. I'll, I'll turn to tenants right now. But on the tenant side, you know, they're not responsible for the property taxes. Of course, it's their landlord who is supposed to be paying um, the property taxes, but frequently don't. And so what we ask tenants is, if the foreclosure proceeds on this property, would you be interested in becoming the homeowner? And 75% of tenants who are in properties behind on taxes say, yes, if the foreclosure proceeds, I would be interested in becoming the homeowner. Out of that response came a, another program that we at the Rocket Community Fund created in partnership with the city of Detroit, the Wayne County Treasurer's Office, and critically a nonprofit organization that does an, an extraordinary amount of work on tax foreclosure in the city, uh, the United Community Housing Coalition. The program is called Make It Home. And essentially what we did is, you know, together with the United Community Housing Coalition, we worked with the city of Detroit and said, look, we have all these tenants who want to own the home that they are renting. Typically, these are people who wind up in the auction. If they are able to buy their home, it's because they are bidding against the rest of the world on this property. It, you know, speculators literally all over the world um, participate in the uh, in the tax foreclosure auction. It's online. If it's a house occupied by someone, it's going to be in better condition than one of these ones that are selling for five hundred dollars. Exactly. So, so, correct me if I'm wrong, but if something sells for fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, that's first of all more cash than what these people are likely going to have. Right. And second of all, it's it's probably too low to really get a mortgage on or go through the, the traditional mortgage process. So this kind of leaves them at a in an auction standpoint at a huge competitive disadvantage, right? That's right. And you've got to have the cash on hand. If you if you want to buy a property in the auction, that's it. You just gotta when you win, you've got to have the cash on hand to buy it. And so, you know, we created the Make It Home program, which essentially the city of Detroit has a right of refusal where they can purchase properties that are going into the tax auction for the total amount of back taxes owed. And so what we do is as the Rocket Community Fund, we work with the Housing Coalition to identify tenants who want to become homeowners. The, the United Community Housing Coalition works with those tenants to make sure that their houses are in decent condition, that they're sort of prepared for homeownership. And then 
through a kind of circuitous uh, route, the Rocket Community Fund grants money to the United Community Housing Coalition, representing the total amount of back taxes owed by all of the tenants uh, who want to become homeowners. The city of Detroit exercises their right of refusal, purchases these properties prior to the auction. The housing coalition purchases the properties from the city uh, with the funds that we granted them, and then turns around and sells the property to the tenant, turning them into the homeowner. So we've, we've done this with 1,100 homes over the last three years. The average purchase price for the tenants is about $3,500. So it's very low cost you know, for the tenant to become the homeowner. And then on the other side of that, we've also created a, a pool of, I think it's about $1.7 million now with the United Community Housing Coalition, which they use is a combination of grants and zero interest loans to do repairs to these homes, uh, as many of them you know, need need significant repairs um, or you know new appliances, things like that, uh, since the landlords who owned them previously were generally not taking care of them. It feels like there is a, a narrative about helping people get on their feet, helping people be resilient. What I see, and this is in contrast to the macro narrative of people outside of Detroit looking in, what I see is a lot of people who when given the opportunity, basically step up and say, like, I want to do this. Like, I want to own a home. I want to take care of a home. I want to be part of a neighborhood. I want to be, you know, a part of this society. When I look at the stats of how you guys have, you know, as part of this, this coalition of people working on this, how you have affected thousands and thousands of different properties, there's something deeply satisfying about the progress that has been made here. I mean, wouldn't you say? Yes. We've come a long way from, from where we were 2013, 2014, sort of the peak years of the tax foreclosure auction when we were seeing, you know, four, five, six thousand homeowners a year losing their homes. We've certainly come a long way. There are much better tools, much better programs, um, much better policies. I'll share a tax foreclosure anecdote. There's Someone I know who, this was before Make It Home, maybe 2016 auction, something like that. She lived in a neighborhood on the east side of Detroit, Morningside. She was a renter. Her landlord wasn't paying the taxes. You know, home was tax foreclosed, purchased by an infamous speculator, well-known in tax foreclosure reform circles, who evicted her. She wanted to buy the home from him. I think he bought it for like $2,200 and wanted to sell it to her for nothing less than $15,000. Right. And so he evicted her, but he didn't have anybody else to move into the home. It just sat there boarded up and she felt responsible for the condition of the home and she didn't have anywhere else to go. So she lived in her van across the street and continued to maintain the property while this landlord did nothing with the property, put nobody else in it. And of course, this was before Make It Home. And this is one of the stories that made it clear that we had to have an answer for people like this. People always talk about you know, the resilience of Detroiters and how much they care about this city. And I feel kind of unqualified to 
say that. I mean, I'm from New Jersey, you know, I, I, I've been here for, for 10 years. I just know that what's been, what was happening here was wrong and it has to stop. You know, you can't take people's agency away like this. You can't take their home for property taxes that they never should have had to pay in the first place. And that's enough for me, you know? And I think that, that the Rocket Community Fund and, and the family of companies as well, it's enough for them just to, to look at it and say, this is not right. And so it's been, you know, it's been very heartening to see the, the, the progress that we've been able to make, you know, over the last few years, working with the city of Detroit and working with, you know, community organizations across the city, um, you know, hundreds of residents, you know, knocking on doors, all of that has been, has been really heartening. And I think the evidence is, is certainly there on, on the other side of programs like Neighbor to Neighbor, you know, what we see when, when we're helping homeowners who are, you know, completing these difficult property tax exemption applications, they want to get them done. They, they call our, our partners and, and email us regularly and ask on the status of their applications. Again, I, I, don't th- I don't feel like it's for me to say, but everybody here, I mean, people care about their homes, they care about their neighborhoods, they care about their city, and it's just uh, the right thing to do to fight for them. Yeah, yeah. That's the point I was hoping you would make because I, I do feel like, you know, when you start to, to meet people and talk to people, you recognize that people are the same wherever you go, right? It's, it, there's some pride of, uh, of being from these neighborhoods. There's pride of the, the home ownership. Sometimes to outsiders, some of these neighborhoods might not look glitzy and glamorous, of course. But I mean, I have seen many people planting flowers in their front yards and mean, you know, doing all these, all these things where you just like, this is, this is what we idealize in this country as home ownership. Basically the ability to start with something and then by your own efforts and by your own passion, uh, make it your own. And you watch that on full display in a lot of these places, even like you say, people don't own the home and where they're actually getting I will say this, and you don't have to agree with this, but when they're getting ripped off by speculators and by uh, people who are kind of positioned to take advantage of the system, they still care. And I I think that's one of the most powerful lessons for me about uh, Detroit, that it's not that I doubted that going in, but I, I think the outside macro narrative of Detroit is very different than you know the reality on the ground and the reality on the ground is just very human and i think once we recognize that it uh it allows us to see something different in the place i'm inspired i'm inspired by the work that you've done and i'm inspired really by uh the people of detroit and the detroit neighborhoods because th- these are these are amazing places with a lot of really great stuff going on yeah no absolutely and I got to thank you, Chuck, and, and Strong Towns for, you know, how much you all have been a part of this as well. I mean, we've talked about the public investment process for a strong town and how much of an inspiration, you know, it's been for for our work. But, you know, if you look at something like neighbor to neighbor, right, I think the sort of starting point for what makes the Strong Towns process for public investment possible and successful is people who care about the place where they live, you know, and if you've got that, 
it's going to work. You know, neighbor to neighbor, right? So, I mean, that's Strongtown's process for public investment, right? I humbly observe where people in the community struggle. That's all the neighbor to neighbor is. It's, right. it's us acknowledging that we don't know what we don't know. We have to start by talking to the people who are here and understanding where they struggle. Ask the question, what is the next smallest thing we can do right now to address that struggle? It's homeowners who need property tax exemptions and help applying for them. It's tenants who are facing tax foreclosure and the risk of eviction through no fault of their own and need somebody to help create some leverage in the system uh, for them, you know, and then do that thing, do it right now, which is always one that whenever I read it, I sort of can't help but feel like a little angry because I know where it comes from, where the urgency in that phrasing comes from, because the urgency is not often there. Right. In policy, in programs, whatever, you know, philanthropy, whatever it may be. You get enamored with the program and not yeah. the, the action. Right. Yeah. And, and it's got to happen soon if you're going to do something, you know, because because it's every day for the people who are living in these situations, they're worried and anxious. And, and it's just you got it. You have to move with a sense of urgency. When I look at the work that you guys do and I, I look at the way kind of Dan Gilbert has approached this, having been someone who's adjacent to philanthropy, I will say that I have had a lot of frustration with very wealthy people and people who set up foundations and philanthropic endeavors because they'll pile it in and they'll say, I'm a smart person, obviously, because I have a lot of money. And so I know what's wrong and I will do, you know, this is what needs to happen. And they will, you know, prescribe something and here's our program and fit this program. And it, it, it almost in a sense ignores not just the organizations that are in place and what, what they're doing and what's on the ground, but it almost says to them, like, you're wrong. You need to change to, to do, you know, our program now. The thing that I have probably most admired about your efforts and the efforts, you know, and, and we can start, say this starts with Dan Gilbert. I think I'm sure that it does. I've never met him personally, but, you know, obviously these things start at the top. But I have noticed a certain level of kind of core humility where it's not here is how we fix Detroit. But it is more of a question of what is, what is the struggle right now at the block level and how do we address this? I feel like you all have leveraged uh, not insignificant amounts of money, but, but the most important things that you've done have leveraged insignificant amounts of money, right? I mean, is that a fair, is that a fair assessment of the approach that you've taken? I think we've found we found opportunities in these systems where, yeah, where you can create sort of asymmetrical leverage, right? Right. With not a lot of money. You know, you, you look at, you know, typically, right. When you talk about something like creating home ownership, right. You get into these conversations about affordable housing and development and like these things that take a long time and cost a lot of money. And what I think we've been able to do is by really studying the conditions on the ground respond and responding to what people want, right? What people in the city uh, want, we have found these opportunities where you, you know, where, where there, there are opportunities for leverage, right? Where something like make it home 
you know, to create 1,100 homeowners at $3,500 uh, a home, it, it, it is a lot more about understanding the nuances and sort of the nooks and crannies of these systems and understanding what people want that creates that possibility than, than just sort of the brute force of, well, of capital. Yeah, but even, I, I, even neighbor to neighbor, man, the thing that's most impressive about this program to me is that you, know, you start with, we want to go talk to 400,000 property owners. And was that the number for, I can't remember what the na- number neighbor was. To, Motor city mapping, we went to all 400,000 yeah. properties. Neighbor to neighbor, we talked to people in 60,000 tax delinquent homes. Okay. Yeah. We want to go and talk to people in 60,000 homes. I think a lot of people who are just, you know, systems people or money people would say, okay, well, that means we need a staff of, you know, 500 people to go out and do this. And, and what I love about neighbor to neighbor, particularly is this idea that, you know what, there are people who get these neighborhoods better than we do. Let's find out what it would take for them to do this, how they would benefit from it. And, and can we put in place a way to help them benefit from doing this work and, and, and make it as something where, you know, we can get the data that we need and the information that we need in a way that actually helps them as a, as a, build their capacity as an organization. It's a very service mindset of philanthropy that I'd like deeply admire. I, I, I do. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, to your point about, you know, Dan's role in all of this, you know, Dan has a saying that I always really liked, which is you can see a lot just by looking, Yeah, you know, which is sort of the idea here. It's like, we just have, we have to look, you've got to do the work of looking and, you know, responding with humility to what's, to what's out there. You know, he's, he's, another, another saying of his is, is um, it's not about who is right. It's about what is right. And I think that it's sort of those two things, you know, in, in combination um, it's just we've got to do the work of of actually observing what's happening and being humble enough to go where it leads you. And to us, something like neighbor to neighbor, why work with anybody except the people who actually live in these neighborhoods? And, you know, in that critical moment when somebody opens the door, you know, one of the, one of the things about tax foreclosure that's always been that, that was always so striking to me early on when I started working on it was it affected everyone and everyone went through it in isolation and shame. Yeah. It was such a difficult thing. You know, people just felt completely alone and that still exists to some extent. It's, it has changed a lot though. So if you want to break through something like that, when somebody knocks on your door um, and says, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, your property taxes they need to be somebody that can bridge that trust gap very quickly. Um, somebody from a neighborhood organization that that person already recognizes, somebody who lives in the neighborhood um, already. As we've discussed, there is just so much predation in the, in the system. Yeah. We talked a little bit earlier about finding those points of leverage and applying the the right amount of force and how it's not been an an overwhelming dollar amount in all instances. The Rocket Fund has committed large dollar amounts to some of this stuff. I know uh, the Gilbert Family Foundation uh, has pledged now half a billion dollars over 10 years in the Detroit Tax Relief Fund. What is going on there and how does this build on 
the work that's been done up to this point. Sure. So, yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, the Gilbert Family Foundation, which is Dan and Jennifer Gilbert's personal foundation, um, along with the Rocket Community Fund, uh, made a $500 million commitment to the city of Detroit over the next um, 10 years. The first investment out of that $500 million is $15 million for the creation of the Detroit Tax Relief Fund. And um, what the Detroit Tax Relief Fund will do is, you know, essentially what, what we have been able to do through, you know, these, these, uh, these identifications of points of leverage and, you know, sort of building series of reforms um, over the years is we have a situation now where, you know, it's much easier for people to get property tax exemptions. There are about 11,000 people who've got um, uh, a property tax exemption this year in Detroit, and we will grow that significantly, probably to something north of 20,000. We helped to pass legislation last year that created something called pay as you stay, which reduces the property tax debt owed by homeowners who get a property tax exemption. It wipes out generally on average between 50 and 70% uh, of the property tax debt owed by a homeowner after they've gotten a property tax exemption. So, so this is stuff they built up in the past. That's right. This is the this is the back taxes. And and and, and a lot of this is stuff that they never should have had to pay in the first. Exactly. Place. That's yeah. right. And so, you know, what 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 we've wanted to do is is get rid of that debt. We we fought uh, part of part of the argument in neighbor to neighbor was that we should have a fully retroactive property tax exemption that would wipe everything out. What was politically feasible ultimately was this was this bill pay as you stay, which reduces the taxes by 50 to 70 percent. But still, you know, we knew these homeowners don't need a discount. They need their taxes gone. Um, and, and so the first 15 million dollars from um, this 500 million dollar commitment created the Detroit Tax Relief Fund, which will pay off in full the property tax debt owed by about 20,000 Detroit homeowners, um, once they've uh, gotten their their property tax exemption, uh, and that represents just about the entire universe of um, Detroit homeowners with property tax debt who likely would qualify for um, a property tax exemption. And so, yes, we've been able to do some, you know, uh, significant things by identifying these sort of points of leverage within the system with not necessarily huge amounts of money. But then they've also enabled us those those little wins, right? As they accumulate, and they do all kind of, you know, there is this kind of like exponential process to it. I think to me, where these things kind of compound off of one another, and then it makes it possible to say, "Hey, look, we're at a point where we could actually solve this problem with the right capital let, investment." Let me say this in a strong town standpoint. You spent a little bit, a bit of money building up to the point where you can confidently deploy a large amount of capital, not yep. not in a risky way, but in a way that is really going to, you know, accelerate all the good things that you've been doing. So it's it's some of the most rewarding work that I've that I've seen in this space, and I'm just really impressed. I'm continually impressed every time we chat with the stuff that you've been able to do. We're almost out of time. I want to shed some light on a little bit of work that we've been able to do together the last Absolutely. few months. Um, you uh, approached me last fall and said, hey, uh, we're looking to um, 
we're looking to do this in some other places as well. The, the Gilbert family is, is interested in this. We've checked this out. Can you, can you help us get a running start? So I, I'm going to leave it at that. Why don't you talk a little bit about maybe some of the stuff that's going to come next for you guys at the Rocket Fund? Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, we have had the opportunity to expand um, our housing stability work at the at the Rocket Community Fund um, into some new cities. The three that we are expanding into is our, our Cleveland, which actually we already had a presence in because they're they, it is a one of the home cities of the the family of companies. But we'll be doing more work in Cleveland, and then also uh, Milwaukee and Atlanta. And so, uh, you know, we're very very excited to uh, have the opportunity to start doing more work in 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 new cities around the country, and 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 yeah, and so you know, when 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 that opportunity arose, I knew that I wanted to talk to you guys. I want to talk to strong towns and yeah, and see if you could kind of like, you know, lay some groundwork for us. And, you know, you know, you know, the kind of things that, that we look at and, you know, our value system and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, wanted, wanted you all to take a look at those, those places first and say, you know, where do you think that we should start and who do you think we should talk to and what issues do you think that we should be aware of? Um, and yeah, now we're at the point where we're starting to, um, you know, develop relationships with people in these other cities and, and really want to take uh, what we've been able to do in Detroit and, and start to start to try to recreate it in, in, in other cities around the country. And so, you know, if there are folks listening, Atlanta, Cleveland, Milwaukee, I would love to speak with you if you're, you know, if you're listening to Strong Towns, I already know I want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I, I think, too, it's, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. It's not coming in saying, all right, we're, we got the deep pockets. Here's all the money. It's coming in and saying, all right, what's going on right now? Uh, we're humble. How do we serve this? How do we make things better? How do we understand what the, the pressure points are? And I, I, that's what you asked us to kind of help identify too and put together, which I'm really proud of, of that partnership. Cause no, that, it was, it was hugely, that's the way we think about things. No, it was exactly what I was hoping for. It was hugely helpful. And yeah, and very, very much so we are at the stage of, you know, humbly observing where people struggle and asking what's the next smallest thing we can do right now to address that struggle. Um, we're going to put a, a bunch of links in the, the, uh, the notes on this uh, podcast episode when it goes up. But if people want to learn more about the Rocket Fund, about the work you're doing, what's the best place to do that? Yeah, so you can you can learn more at rocketcommunityfund.org. If you're in Atlanta, Cleveland, and Milwaukee, um, I mean, just email me. I'd love to love to have people. <laughs> That's dangerous. You want to give your email out here? I mean, I you feel, are on I, Twitter, so <laughs> Twitter might be the best place to. All right, you could you could find me on Twitter too. Uh, I'm at at Zug Islander on uh, on Twitter. Uh -huh. Well, a reference to the the, the uh, sort of uh, industrial island in the Detroit river called Zug Island. Uh, any, any RoboCop fans will be familiar with it. Well, you do remember the days of strong towns where we could give out our email address and that would be cool. And it's, it's gotten to where, all right. I appreciate uh, the warning there. <laughs> there's way too many people listening now for us to, to get away with that. Uh, unless you want to just do nothing but answer email for the next month. But yeah, Alex, dude, it is so nice to talk to you. And I just, 
of all the people that I've had opportunity to meet and I think uh, affect me and my mind and my understanding of a place, you know, you, you are at the top of that list. Uh, the work that you've done in Detroit uh, has been nothing short of, of just amazing and inspiring. And, and when you say we're inspired by strong towns, I, I kind of let that pass in one ear and out the other, because to me, you guys have shaped my thinking just as much as, as or way more than, than anything I've done to shape yours. So thank you so much. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you to the whole Strong Towns team. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Take care and keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. We'll talk again soon, Alex. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.